Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, of our Jesus, our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this text that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that you would make us like little children before your word, longing to be fed, longing to be uh, taught. Lord, so humble ourselves before your word that we may receive it. I pray that you would give us ears to hear it and that we would be built up through the ministry of your word by the work of your spirit. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So returning now to the second letter of Peter. We worked a while ago um, through 1 Peter. And now we return to Peter's writing. Um, If the first letter of Peter had a theme that ran through the whole of the the letter, it was this. Remember what you have by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what you have by faith in Jesus Christ, even though you may be suffering for it, even though you may be suffering under various trials in this life. That, That theme runs through all of 1 Peter. Second, the second letter from Peter to the churches has three main themes which correspond to the, each of the chapters. Uh, these themes are three exhortations from the apostle. The first is grow in holiness. That's chapter one, grow in holiness. Two, avoid doctrinal heresy. That's the second. And then three, be prepared for Christ's return. Be prepared for Christ's return. Now, we find out we find out in verse 14 of chapter 1, if you look there, that he knows that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling is imminent. He knows he's dying soon. And so the, the, sometimes God blesses individuals with being able to communicate on their deathbed so to speak. Now, he may not be on his deathbed. We know that he was, he was crucified. And, um, but he's anticipating this. And you have to remember that Jesus had told him that this was coming, that he was going to die before John. And so all of his life, he's been thinking, I'm about to die. 
But now he knows it's imminent, and so when you know death is imminent, that's when you stop fooling around. And you say those things that need to be said. And he, he, he writes this letter as, and, and gives those basic, you know, be godly, don't be a heretic, get ready for Christ's return. Those are the three things he thinks are essential to say at the end of his life. And very helpful to those who read them and who, uh, who hear them. We must note from the outset that the apostle's main concern is expressed, as we would expect at the beginning of the letter. His main concern seems to be also this overarching theme is lust. Lust. Lust is a theme in this book, right? Verse 4 makes it clear that the apostle Peter sees all of mankind split into two groups, those who have become partakers of the divine nature and those who revel in the corruption that is in the world by lust. Two groups. Those who are partakers of God's nature, of divine nature. We'll talk about that a little bit. And those who are living in the world, just reveling in the corruption that is in the world by lust. The chapters of this letter then elaborate on this theme of lust. Chapter 1 is an exhortation to pursue godliness and avoid the lusts of this world, verse 4. Chapter 2 is an exhortation to avoid heresy, which has its roots not in bad intellect, but heresy has its roots in sensuality, verse 2. Lust, strong desires. Chapter 3, then, is an exhortation to look into Christ's return, where he says that we should not listen to mockers who follow their own lusts, verse 3. So those who are lusting will try to, try to put us off from anticipating Christ's, Christ's return. And so uh, lust, lust is, uh, is an appropriate focus. Uh, given what we know about Peter especially, we just read this in Mark 14. Peter was told by Jesus, you're going to deny me. And then, and then Peter lusts, right? Not, and I'm not talking about sexual lust. I'm talking about a strong desire for anything. He lusts to not be known as a follower of Christ. To the point of cursing. To, to the point of yelling and cursing at those who say, no, you're one of his followers. And he gives into it. And so uh, Peter was well acquainted with strong desires. He was a man of strong desires, and it often got him in trouble. The apostle Paul rebuked him to his face because he would no longer eat with Gentiles. Right? It was lust. The Greek word used here in, uh, for the word lust is epithumia. And that's a compound word in the Greek made by mashing two words, epi and thumos, together. Epi means on or above, and thumos is the word for anger, wrath, or passion. Um, so the word, this word includes sexual lust, but it goes beyond that to describe any strong inclination or passionate desire toward something else. In Luke 22:15, Jesus says to his disciples at the last supper, "I have 
earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The first two words of that Greek statement are the noun and verb form of epithumia. A literal translation would be, with desire, I desire to eat this Passover. With deep desire. I mean, to repeat a word in the Greek is to emphasize it. I deeply desire to eat this Passover. And so even in, so epithumia can be used for positive longings as well as um, sinful lusts. Strong desires may be the best way to define epithumia. Those strong desires can be, like I said, toward good or bad. Nonetheless, the very course of our lives, right? The very course of our lives are marked by the things we strongly desire. We go, we wake up in the morning and we get on to our strong desires, right? Our lives moving from, from childhood to adolescence to, to adulthood and on to older life is just a track of our strong desires being played out. What we do with our vacations, what we do with our time, what choice we make for dinner, what things we watch on our screens, what degrees we pursue, what words come out of our mouths in certain situations, what we think about, what music we listen to, these are all informed by our strong desires. And dear brothers and sisters, desires are dangerous when they arise in hearts that are desperately sick and deceptive. Those who have not had a renewal of the heart are completely given over to their epithumia. Their strong desires just push them around like they're a weakling. But those who have had the love of God poured out in their hearts are no longer locked into obeying their lusts. They will not continue to struggle. I mean, they, they will continue to struggle. And they will have to mortify their desires. But nonetheless, the Christian who is a Christian indeed is not at the mercy of those strong desires. This is the point the Apostle Paul makes in his letter to the Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires, the epithumia of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire, epithumio, against the Spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You may not do the things that you strongly desire. And just a few verses later, after contrasting the deeds of the flesh and the, the um, deeds of the spirit, the apostle writes, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Epithumia is that word there. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. The fruit of the Spirit is the ability to say no to your strong desires, to say no to your lusts, to say no to your flesh. And the Apostle Peter is focused on that problem in this second letter. He sees the world split into two factions, those who have control of their desires by the Spirit 
and those who are completely given over to them. Since Eve strongly desired the fruit of that forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, and Adam followed her into the consummation of those desires, mankind has been at the mercy of lust. Lust has brought down empires, right? Lust has started world wars. Lust has caused every murder. And lust has informed every kind of worldly ambition known to man. Lust, strong desires. But God's children should be set free from this terrible master. From a life of going from one covetous moment to the next. Now we'll come back to that in a minute, but let's work through Let's work through this passage. The Apostle Peter is the writer of this letter by God's providence. We, we read of him earlier and were, received that information about him that he struggled with his strong desires. Even though he had been close to Jesus, had followed him, had learned from him, had seen his miracles with his own eyes, Still, at the end of it, he finds that the desires of his heart are to hide that association with Jesus. He, as with any man who has a pulse, knows the tug of, the, of his desires. right? And the disaster it is to give in to them when they are not for what is right or what is of God. Peter knows this, the deceptiveness of his heart and therefore is ready to encourage you through his word to say no to your desires. He writes to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are no, there are no higher tiers in the Christian faith. Yes, there are levels of maturity and there are differing extents of our sanctification, and that does lead to some distinctions among us. And there are different offices. Peter mentions he is a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. But the faith of all God's elect is sufficient for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, and for the elect to enter into the very presence of God. Whatever distinctions we have by God's providence in this life, the end result of the faith of a child, the faith of an old man, the faith of an apostle, the faith of a garbage collector is adoption into the household of God as a child of God. Faith, in other words, is all that is needed. Now, whether you are rich or poor or American or South African, whether you're uh, a Tory or a Whig or a uh, Republican or Democrats, an abolitionist or an incrementalist, educated or uneducated, faith is all that is needed. In other words, the grace of God is indiscriminately given to all his elect people. Regardless of what black lives matters or the Judaizers of Galatia who are very similar, Say, certain people do not need to do extra in order to be saved. You don't need to do extra. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. 
Faith saves the white man as thoroughly as it saves any other man. It is, after all, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to them, not some sort of righteousness they gin up themselves by paying a price. And that's what that's packed all into Peter saying, we have likes, the like same faith as you. Very same. There's nothing particularly special about me, Peter, the apostle. I'm saved by faith through the grace of God, just as you are. And what a wonderful blessing that is, that, that we don't have to add the... Uh, that we don't have to add worldly criteria or worldly hurdles to have the same faith that the Apostle Peter had. In verse 2, the Apostle blesses them by announcing grace and peace upon them, and he asks that that grace and peace be multiplied by the means of something. He writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you in what? The knowledge of of God and of Jesus our Lord. The knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Increasing knowledge of God is the key to increasing reception of grace and peace. Let me say that again. Increasing knowledge of God is the key to increasing reception of grace and peace. Want to rest in the paternal goodness of God? Get to know him. Know him. Calvin writes, The more anyone advances in the knowledge of God, every kind of blessing increases also equally with the, with the sense of divine love. That is the theme that Calvin pounds at the very beginning of his institutes, right? Where he says, we have to know God to know ourselves, and we have to know ourselves to know God. But knowing God puts us in relief, right? In relief to God's perfect holiness. And then we learn about ourselves. Seeing God's perfect holiness, and we learn that we have fallen very short. I had a long quote from Calvin's Institutes here that I'll spare you from. I just summarized it, but it is wonderful. Um, the first chapter of his Institutes are, is very helpful. So when we pursue the knowledge of God, when we learn about his absolute perfection and glorious purity and his, his um, unblemished love, we first learn about our absolute corruption. And then in a re realization almost too good to be true, we learn also that God is gracious that he is compassionate, that he is slow to anger, he's abounding in loving kindness. Yes, we see our wickedness when we think about the holiness of God, but we simultaneously see that God has provided his righteousness as our own righteousness. This is why what seems to be morbid, contemplating perfection only to reveal our utter depravity, is actually the increase of our peace. In studying God, we learn both that he is angry every day and that he has poured out his anger on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we, wicked and ungrateful sinners, might have peace with God. It is the duty 
I mean, it is the study of, of the character and actions of God that will multiply our sense and our enjoyment of the grace and peace of God. And so, I mean, that's abstract. I've just stated the principle. You have to know God. You can't be lazy. Okay, you can't be lazy in, in, in your study of God's character and, and actions and, and then somehow expect that you will have a confident, faithful, peace-filled life. You won't. I mean, that, that will be the, the theme of this first chapter of Second Peter. We must pursue him and increase in knowledge. If we do not, we can expect that our desires will be set upon the lesser things of the world than they are set upon the great glory of God himself. If your desires are fixated on the things of the world, if your desires seem to be earthly, video games, wealth, ease, ambition, political conquering, well, you have not properly gotten to know God. And his utterly stupefying glory. If you find it hard to come together with God's people to worship him, then you have not properly gotten to know God and his character and what that character means for your eternal comfort. Your lack of zeal for God is due to your laziness in getting to know him. You know, perhaps rather than binge-watching Netflix, perhaps we all should consider not binge-watching Netflix and should take up a book of theology that's that thick or, or a biography of a missionary. You know, somebody who who was so zealous, they left behind every comfort and went to share the gospel. That might be helpful to us. It might teach us something about God, his providence. Or maybe, maybe instead, of, instead of getting that next episode going, you should memorize one single verse and just roll it over in your head over and over and over again until you truly get down to the, the, the um, potent part of its meaning. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe you should read God's word. Like a lot. Like, like all the time. Like more than, more than, where should I put this to make us feel guilty? More than twice a month. Is that, too, is that too high? I, brothers and sisters, I know there have been, even as a pastor, there have been many months where I have not cracked a Bible other than what I had to do for preaching. I have built in accountability for my study of God's word. You don't have that, and so I know you go months without reading God's word. And that should not be. That should not be. You should... 
and, and it shouldn't be because it's a, it's a great book. It's a delightful book. It's, it's all about your redemption. It's all about your future. It's all about all the good promises of God that are coming to you because you have faith in Jesus Christ. How can we not be just constantly chewing on that and, and laughing out loud as we think of the stupendous things that God has done for us? That's what, that's what this should be, and you should constantly be going back there. If you want recommendations for books to read, ask Renton. Ask me. You know, this is what I'm struggling with, or this is what I want to think about, or this is what I don't know about God. And, and go read old dead guys who are going to be faithful on those topics, and we'll make recommendations. But that is your pursuit of getting to know God. You should always be reading one theology book, the Bible, and another theology book. <laughs> we'll put a biography in there. Biography of Christian missionaries. Biography of, of Christian pastors. Biography of Christian wives. You know, that, that should just be constantly teaching you about God. You want to have peace, right? You want to have peace. Everybody wants to have peace. That will come as you contemplate your triune God and his mindfulness towards you, his provision for you. The Apostle Peter moves from that prayer that they may increase in the grace and peace by means of the knowledge of God into a description of just what benefits we've received from him. He writes, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and excellence. That is to say that by means of the true knowledge of God, whose character is marked by glory and excellence, which is the power of God in us, we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need. Let's stop and think about that for a moment. The apostle is saying that our knowledge of God is from above, that it is evidence of his divine power. This is absolutely essential. So even though I've just gotten through exhorting you to pursue God and know him, there is no hope if God does not give that knowledge to you. And this is where those two things converge that are so hard for us to bring together in our minds is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We must pursue him and he must make that pursuit profitable. We must seek God, he must seek us. And we must work and God most assuredly must work. We are responsible and God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. This is scriptural, and there's no way for me to explain something now that has dazzled the minds of theologians um, and pastors for all the ages of the church. It is a truth that is accepted by faith in Jesus Christ. You must pursue God, and God must pursue you. But what can we say about it? Does it not fill your heart with both anguish and joy, knowing that God's power is at work in you? Anguish because you constantly feel the contradiction of the tug of your flesh. You constantly feel like, man, is God really at work in me? And the flesh is tugging you um, 
pulling you uh, into temptations and, and you seem to be resisting God. Uh, joy, on the other hand, because you know without the power of God working in you, you are hopeless. And so those, those who feel deep anguish or deep joy in contemplating the divine power working in God's children are not my concern. You're going to feel that tug of war. It's those of you who feel nothing in regard to God that concern me. Feel nothing. You go from event to event. You go from worship to worship service, from conversation to conversation, not once feeling any obligation to God, not once feeling any conviction of sin, not once observing yourself fight against something that tempts you, not once perhaps even thinking about the one who made you, God Almighty, during the day. How is it that the divine power can be at work in you when there is no perception of it at all? It makes no sense. If knowledge of God is not increasing, if your knowledge of self is not increasing, then where is the power of God in you? If the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, how can the Holy Spirit not be working in you to crave a knowledge, to crave the worship, to crave a continual growth and knowing the glorious and almighty God? So this is a test. If you don't have those cravings, then the love of God may not be in your heart. We should ask ourselves whether we know God better. Think about this. Do you know God better than you did 20 years ago? Or 10 years ago? Or a year ago? Or even a week ago? Because that should be the case. You should know God better now than you did a week ago. If the answer is no, then you ought to be on your knees crying out to him for mercy through his son, Jesus Christ, Does it make sense that those who have had the omnipotent God act upon them would stagnate or backslide? Does it make sense that that those who have had the magnificent promises of God preached to them every Sunday would never make progress in godliness or that they would stay as unknowledgeable about God as the very day they were first interested? I won't use the word converted. Covenant children, covenant children, those of you who grew up in Christian homes, these are insanely important questions for you to contemplate. Because you have been exhorted to follow Jesus Christ, you've been exhorted to contemplate God's glory since the day you were born. And it is therefore easy to be bored with the things of God. And bored with the church, and bored with Christianity, and bored with limited atonement, and bored with Jesus' return. You must especially pursue God. You must especially search him out and make sure your heart is fully devoted to him. 
You have been blessed with his covenant blessings since your conception. And yet you go days, weeks, years without seriously praying, without seriously meditating on his word, without seriously praising him in worship. How can that be? How can you be so thankless for God's grace towards you in simply birthing you into a home that had a knowledge of God? Well, there are two reasons. Either you don't know him at all and his power is not at work in you and you've just, you've just been faking being a Christian up to this point. You've faked it to, make, to please your parents. Or you've just been careless in your pursuit of him. You've found the pursuit of, of the interesting things of the world and the, the worldly ambitions to be more compelling, more, more pleasant, more important than pursuing your relationship with God Almighty, the one you will stand before at the last judgment. Now, trust me here as your pastor. I'm still, well, I'm speaking to all of you, but I'm speaking particularly to the the covenant children. I'm speaking to my children. It would be better for you to admit to your elders that you have never seriously thought about God than it would be for you to continue playing the hypocrite and not pursuing him. To admit that could be the first serious thing you do in your pursuit of the knowledge of God. I'm a hypocrite, and I don't get all this. Confess that to your elders and begin to know God. Children, trust what you are hearing from me this morning. Trust what your grandparents are telling you about God. Trust what your parents have been teaching you. They have experience in the world. An experience with God. They have suffered from their sins and they have tasted and seen still and especially that the Lord is good. So embrace that message. Pursue God without your parents asking you to. It is time for you to move on from childishness duty into your own pursuit of God from your own heart. You will not be disappointed. Of course, some things you'll have to learn by suffering because of your sins. Right? Uh, But you are called as covenant children to embrace that covenant from the heart. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. To pursue God because you desire to know him. Not merely because you want to get your parents off your back. But that you want to be saved. God made you. God knows you. Your strongest desire should be to know him, not to build a virtual world in Minecraft, not to be famous, not to be liked. It should be to know him. The scripture is for you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you failed the test. It's time for you to leave childish things behind and get on to pursuing faith in Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are an, 
have blessed you, will you then spurn him? You are an eternal soul with an eternal body, and what lies ahead is much longer time than this lifetime. Time will tell which ones of you determine to live for the strong desires of the flesh, or which ones of you determined by God's grace to set your affections on God Almighty? Time will tell. Time will tell. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. By these things, his power and glory, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Things like this, that your sins are all forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. That the guilt, the guilt of your sin has been removed. That God will be your God and through your whole life and through eternity, eternity, he will protect you and defend you. That God will hear your prayers. That God will provide your daily bread. That he will never leave you or forsake you. That Jesus goes ahead of you to prepare a place for you in heaven where you will be forever blessed in the enjoyment of God and in the rest of an eternal Sabbath. He has promised you that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. He, he has promised that the, all the nations will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. He has promised personally to you that he will wipe tears from your eyes and he will remove every sort of pain, whether it's psychological, spiritual, or physical, from your body. He has promised you that you're going to be like Jesus. And what is amazing about all those promises is that they were made by someone who, by his very nature, can do whatever he pleases. He is omnipotent. Even to speak of God keeping promises is somewhat improper. God doesn't keep promises. God is truth. And what he speaks is. He doesn't keep promises. There's no effort God has to make to keep his promises like us. If he says it, it will come to pass. God's promises are guaranteed by his omnipotence. By his glory and by his inability to lie at all, these promises are assured because when it boils down to it, God is God. One of the promises that is given to you, child of God, is that you may become a partaker of the divine nature. Whoa. What does that mean? This does not mean that each of us becomes little gods. That is not what this means. This is not the um, Mormon error. Um, this, this does not mean that we become little gods. Imagine if we all became little gods. 
we would just return to the Roman and Greek warfare of the gods. Uh, partaking in the divine nature means being conformed to the character of God, not participating in his being. Okay? It means being conformed to his character. Romans 8 teaches us that God predestined us, what? To become conformed to the image of his son. All the adopted children of God will take on the character, the godliness of their elder brother, Jesus Christ. And the father honors his son by conforming all his children to his son's image. Nesbitt says that this means that Christians begin to grow to resemble him in heavenly wisdom, in holiness, in uprightness, and other of his communicable properties, especially these, humility, self-denial, love and pity toward other miserable sinners, zeal for the Lord's honor, and such as other perfections which were eminent in the man Christ. Indeed, what marks someone who is being conformed to Christ, who is partaking of the divine nature, is that he has done this, as Jesus did his entire life. Without fail, he has escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The corruption that comes by strong desire for wickedness. God's children have been set free from having to live their lives according to the strong desires of deceptive hearts. They don't have to get a fix of the goods and games of the world. They have a stronger desire, a more lasting desire to worship and serve the one who made them. So in 10 years, dear people, in 10 years, 10 years ahead, Will you still be in bondage to your godless desires like Gollum, fixated on your precious? Or will you be a man like the Lord Jesus Christ, having a heart fully devoted to God? Will you take delight in giving into your lusts, or will you take delight in in, in mortifying and putting to death your lusts. So in 10 years, in short, will, will you give evidence that God's power is at work in you or not? Will the triune God be, be su the subject that you always study? The vocation that you never quit, right? The, the pursuit of your life that will cause you to separate from anything or anyone that gets in the way, whether that be a wife, a mother, a sister, brother, husband, father, or anything in the world. Time will tell. Time will tell. Pursue God and find him while there is still time. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen.